This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. It's 30 years since the end of the Falklands War. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons. Our troops have been ordered not to fire except in self-defense. Stanley woke up to find it was back under British rule. We hear from veterans who've made the journey back and from the former Royal Marine commander who made victory possible. You can hear the bullets now whizzing around us. Somebody's been hit up a front. We crawled out of our shelters. The freezing morning underlined the need to take Stanley swiftly. We are trying to take advantage of the fact that the enemy have broken, and we're trying to double up and bring out some more troops around the side to cut off as many of the enemy as we can before going up into Stanley itself. And then quite suddenly the whole position changed. The Argentinians weren't fighting, they were retreating. 8-2, a Roger out. Yeah. Is there a white flag flying? There is a white flag flying over Stanley. Very <laughs> <Bloody> marvellous. <laughs> Our forces reached the outskirts of Port Stanley. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons. Our troops have been ordered not to fire except in self-defence. Stanley woke up to find it was back under British rule. Down from the mountains came the British troops, marching proudly through the town they'd come to liberate. How are you feeling, lad? Right. They didn't look like men who just walked across the island, but they had every step of the way on their own two feet. I never had any doubts yeah. in our armed forces. I knew it would be difficult, but I knew that they would do it. 30 years ago today, the Falkland Islands were liberated by British forces. Veterans of the conflict are gathering to remember their 255 colleagues killed in the fighting, which ended 74 days of occupation by Argentine troops. Ceremonies of remembrance are taking place at the Cathedral in Stanley and the Liberation Memorial in the Falklands. Later, I'll be joined by Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded the British land operation, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. But first, let's hear from Matt Teal in Stanley. Thanks, Kate. Well, the weather here in the Falklands this week has been bitterly cold, but the welcome from the islanders couldn't have been warmer. Their gratitude towards the armed forces for their liberation three decades ago is almost as palpable as their desire to remain British, with one islander telling me that the referendum announced this week would be an exercise in counting to 100. It was, of course, here in Stanley on the 14th of June 1982 when British forces advanced on the capital and Argentine troops fled in disarray. Later, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher informed the House of Commons that the invading troops had finally surrendered. Britain has maintained a military presence in the Falklands ever since. At Mount Pleasant Complex, which is about 35 miles away from here, there are four Typhoon fighter jets, search and rescue helicopters and Hercules aircraft for air-to-air refuelling and maritime patrol. There are several rapier anti-aircraft batteries on the islands and the surrounding waters will soon be patrolled by Type 45 destroyer HMS Dauntless. There are at least a thousand British troops stationed at NPC and that includes a resident infantry company of 150 soldiers. The current commander of British forces, South Atlantic Islands, is Brigadier Bill Aldridge. I asked him how important it is to impress on the young soldiers now serving here what happened back in 1982. For a sense of being here, a sense of understanding of what our role is, um, you can look no better than back to 1982. And of course, um, 
an awful lot of the islanders themselves were here then and they're the ones who can tell uh, the young servicemen and women um, why they're here. They understand the reason for them being here um, and for very obvious reasons uh, that's why they want us here. Argentina, um, the political rhetoric um, serves just to underline to everybody um, the potential, and it is nothing more than that, the potential for misunderstanding in this part of the world. You mentioned there the, the increase in the Argentinian rhetoric over the Falkland Islands. What impact, if any, is that having on the way you guys are operating down here? It's business as usual for us. Um, there's been no change to, to anything. Um, as I say, it purely provides that degree of focus for, for individuals who might otherwise think uh, there's, there's absolutely nothing happening here. One thing that struck me so far is that we're here obviously remembering the past and commemorating 30 years ago, but a lot of people are keen to talk about the future. What do you think the future holds for the Falkland Islands? Uh, well, it's wherever the Falkland Islands want to take it. It, it is a bright future, um, and you're, you're absolutely spot on to, to pick it up. They've got an economy that I think most of the rest of the world um, would, would almost die for. Um, extremely well supported. They're, they're totally um, self-sufficient in everything except foreign policy and defence. Um, and with the natural resources that are available here, um, I, I can see it's an extremely bright place. And I guess in terms of foreign policy and defence, that's what you guys are here for? Not foreign policy, no. I'm, I'm, we are here um, to defend, if necessary, the, the right of self-determination of the Falkland Islanders. Um, but preferably, um, we can do that by deterring any threat against them. That was Brigadier Bill Aldridge, commander of British Forces South Atlantic Islands. One of the most iconic aspects of the war, which British troops currently serving here have almost been brought up on, is the Yomp. After British troops landed at St Carlos, the Atlantic conveyor was sunk, destroying all but one of the task force's Chinook helicopters. It meant there was only one way for the Royal Marines in Paris to make the 120-kilometre journey here to Stanley, on foot. One veteran of that time is Mike Cole, who in 1982 was the OC of Zulu Company, 4-5 Commando, Royal Marines. He returned to the Falklands to retrace the Yomp along with David McPherson, whose brother Gordon was killed just two days before the Argentine surrender. Our reporter Charlotte Cross joined them on their journey. The Yomp from San Carlos to Stanley has gone down in regimental history as one of the very greatest feats of endurance when 4-5 Commando covered 120 kilometres over tough terrain in freezing winter weather, carrying upwards of 80 pounds of kit per man. Mike Cole was a young captain at the time, commanding Zulu Company. 30 years on, he's back, retracing those steps. The memory of that time has never left him. We got to Newhouse, I remember it was chucking it down with rain. We went in round an all-round defence, put out sentries so we had a secure perimeter and then those that weren't on watch could get inside a sleeping bag um, and then wrap a poncho around you, pull it over your head and try and forget where you were. <laughs> David McPherson is with him on his journey. His brother Gordon, a young Marine, was killed just two days before the Argentine surrender. I was trying, before I came here, trying to measure in my mind what it would be like, but I just couldn't imagine the pain that every step you take would, would be like. It's difficult enough for us doing it during the day with a, a 
lighter pack. It's really hard work. How they could possibly do it? In 1982, the Marines stopped at small settlements. At Teal Inlet, Chris Torson, who was 12 at the time, remembers it well. I don't think so. I drove around the farm delivering rations to the temporary hospital, to the guys from the rapier sites, helping to forward all the rations to the helipad for moving forward to the troops on the front line. You know, it's just basic things like anything you could do, everybody mucked in and done it. On the outskirts of Teal Inlet, a memorial stands to Gordon and to all the men who died in battle and were for a short time buried here. This is the place where their sacrifice brought freedom and that will never be forgotten. Veterans like Mike often rely on the kindness of strangers for a bed for the night or a hot meal. The hospitality is completely, it's wonderful. It's really, it's very, very obvious that the people here will um, never forget what we did in 1982. Locals like Ailsa Heathman, who lived through the horror of occupation, are always glad to see them. Sometimes they almost seem overwhelmed by what people do for them here, but I, I always say to them, well, we can't ever repay what you did for us. So some of them are still suffering, some of them lost their lives, unfortunately, so their families suffer as well. For David McPherson, meeting local people helps him to accept his brother did not die in vain. Once you come here, you see what they were actually fighting for. It's difficult when you're 8,000 miles away to actually understand that, but uh, coming here has. On the top of Two Sisters, next to the memorial dedicated to all those who were killed on this mountain, including Gordon McPherson, they held a service of remembrance. Mike Cole remembers how hard the fighting was here. It was certainly a difficult um, position to take. Uh, we had encountered minefields a little bit further down the mountain and the fighting had been fierce enough when we got up here. The final leg of the journey took them from two sisters into Stanley. Mike says for David McPherson, this is the most important part of the journey. Because from this point onwards, his brother Gordon uh, didn't, kept, didn't complete the omp and it'll be the, it'll be the leg from two sisters down into Stanley that uh, David will be doing for his brother Gordon. And I think that's really the, the, the main reason that he's come all this way, just to finish it off. In Stanley, they were greeted warmly by children from the local primary school. They've been brought up to know they owe their freedoms and their future on the Falklands to men like Mike and David's brother Gordon. Charlotte Cross for BFBS in the Falkland Islands. Well, never far away from the minds of people here are Argentina's continued claim to what they call the Malvinas. The government here is currently in the middle of a PR war with the Argentines and the governor, Nigel Haywood, is more than happy to set the record straight. I think what you're seeing as you, as you come here, which is the tremendous hope and optimism that everyone has for the future here, you'll have seen the new school buildings, the hospital industries that have, that have started up and grown over the last 30 years, the youngsters. So really... It's a future. They have a future. The islands have a future. And that's because of the events of 30 years ago. Argentina has certainly ramped up the rhetoric over their claim to the Falkland Islands over the last few months. How do you react to that? Much of what Argentina says is, is simply untrue. Much of their claim is, is around historical events of, of 180 years ago, and it's a misrepresentation of those events. Um, so we're trying to make sure that, that the rest of the world understands that, that what Argentina is saying is not the case. But that's not as important as, as our main task, which is to make sure the world understands that the islands have been inhabited for 180 years by generations of Falkland Islanders, and they have the right to determine what form of government they, they live under, and nobody else has that right. 
Do you think that the exchange of words between the Falklands and Argentina has now become something of a PR battle? It is quite ironic, really, yes, um, the law of unintended consequences. But the main thing is that uh, I think it has highlighted to us um, that, that there has been a need for the islanders to, to let the world know what the islands are really like. There are a lot of misconceptions out there, you know, that the islanders are a, a, a transplanted population. They're, they're kept in place by the military. I've even had people saying, oh, well, they don't speak Spanish, do they? We thought that they were um, really an Argentine population kept under control by the British military. There's lots of misconceptions out there about the islands, and, and those are best put right by people coming down and seeing the islands themselves. We're spending a lot of time this week looking at the past, at 30 years ago. What about the future for these islands? There are so many areas that we're looking at to take forward the economy of the islands. The islanders themselves are incredibly optimistic about the future. Those educators in the UK are coming back to the islands. They see their future here. The, the, the future could hardly be brighter for the islands. I, I did make the mistake yesterday of asking somebody whether the commitment to, to remain British was as strong as ever. And she suggested to me, did I want to leave with a black eye? <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's fairly obvious. You, you only have to drive around and look at the flags everywhere, the Union flags, Falkland Island flags, the Union flags are, 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 are everywhere jointly. I think everyone sees themselves here as Falkland Islanders first, but they also see themselves as, as British second. And the celebrations we've just had for the Diamond Jubilee, for example, would leave nobody in any doubt at all about the Britishness of the islands. Nigel Haywood speaking to me earlier. Well, for me, Liberation Week here in the Falklands has been about balance, not only balancing commemoration and celebration, but about balancing the past and the future. There is certainly concern among people about Argentina's continued sabre-rattling, but the commitment to self-determination and the desire to remain British is as strong, if not stronger, than ever. Well, that's all from me. Matt Teal reporting for SITREP from the Falklands. Still to come, how the Falklands story was covered by the press back in 1982 and we'll hear from a member of the Falklands Assembly on why he and the Argentinian president are in New York discussing the future of the islands. That kind of um, commitment by the, the, the islanders to recognise a very, very small part that we played uh, in liberating this island will stay with me for the rest of my life. And so much so that I've, I've came back twice since then because it's the people, the, the right of self-determination, they, they openly express humanity and dignity here. They respect each other. There's hardly if any crime. There's a sense of community, a sense of nationalism, a sense of identity. This is the benchmark for democracy here. And these people, deserve every credit for the way that they display that. It's just absolutely incredible. I'm going to come back to this island as ashes and I'm going to have my ashes spread from the top of Saparil because I feel that there's such a, um, a magnetism and I'm drawn to the island and the people that I was a part of this island 30 years ago but I want to be a part of it permanently and if I can have my ashes disposed onto this island that will fulfil my dream. 
That was Falklands veteran Kenny Ward, who served with 12 Air Defence Regiment's Royal Artillery. He's marked the 30th anniversary by making his third trip back to the island since 1982. Well, I'm joined now by the man who commanded 3 Commando Brigade, which retook the Falklands, Major General Julian Thompson, and alongside him is our defence analyst Christopher Lee, who was a defence correspondent for the BBC at the time. Hello to both of you. Uh, General, we've just heard a veteran there saying that the islands he helped liberate are now very much a part of him. Can you understand that feeling? I can totally understand it. Uh, I feel a great draw to them. I love going back and I like seeing how marvellous they are and how much they've advanced since 1982. Could you just take us through your memories of this day in 1982? Well, I can remember I was standing in a house in Stanley which we were living in, we'd requisitioned, I don't know who owned it, and one of my radio operators switched his uh, HF radio set to the BBC World Service. It was 9 o'clock at night, and I heard from the BBC 8,000 miles away about the surrender taking place 800 yards from where I was standing. That's incredible. It is incredible. How That's did you how it react? Happened. Well, I thought, I wonder if it's true. And then eventually one of the guys who'd been taking part in the <laughs> surrender negotiations came to find me, because he, he took about an hour to find me, and I said, is this what I've heard correct? And he said, yeah, it is correct. So what did you do? Well, I went down to the kitchen where the parachute soldiers who occupied this house had lit the peat-fired Rayburn stove and they'd put a, a stack of rations into a big pot on the stove and they invited me to join them, so I took my spoon out of my top left-hand pocket where I used to keep my spoon, dipped it into the pot, and then we opened a bottle of red wine which Argentine officers had left behind and toasted success. Indeed, that's incredible. What kind of words came to your mouth when you were toasted during that toast? Can you remember what you said? I think I toasted my blokes, and the thought that was going through my head was, thank God, no more young men are going to have to die. Indeed, and barely 72 hours before that, your men had been involved in capturing three key targets on the approach to the capital, Stanley. At that stage, how formidable was the enemy? Well, they were very formidably positioned in high hills, some of them a thousand feet high or nearly a thousand feet high, covered with rocks like a dinosaur spine, which you could defend with just a handful of people. And, and the blokes were having to attack uphill, in some cases through minefields, in order to uh, assault these positions. And they were very formidable positions indeed. Indeed, and you yourself um, had narrowly escaped death at one point when you were bombed in your headquarters. What happened? Well, we uh, we narrowly escaped death several times, but we were because uh, we were bombed three times. But the, the last evening of the war, just before we were about to carry out a night attack, and just before I was about to hold an O group or a, 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 a conference, if you like, I was feeling rather pleased with myself because the weather was fine for a change. And suddenly, over the hill came four Skyhawk bombers, and and dropped bomb a thousand pound bombs on us. The nearest one landed forty meters away. And you thought that was it, did I th you? Well, I thought I was going to die, yeah. Because I saw the bombs detached from the rail, and they have a sort of retard system on them so that they won't go off under the aeroplane. They go off after the aeroplane's gone overhead, and so they float down quite slowly. I mean, not float, but they come down quite slowly. And as I say, one of them landed 40 metres away from where I was. And luckily, because it was in peat, which is soft, all the explosion went up. And we only had one guy concussed, that's all. Do those kind lucky. of images come back to you very often, 30 years on? We are from time to time, yes. Christopher, um, we know how British veterans are commemorating today. Um, what will their former enemies be doing? 
Um, well, they got this. They, they still want the, what they call the male Venus back, but there's a certain. You've got to remember the times are quite different. The Galtieri era, that actually started this war, started it for quite different reasons. The political climate was quite different. But um, we know, for example, that something's been going on since the 1960s that all colonial powers ought to, or former colonial powers, ought to release territory back to the original claimants, or what, or it ought to be sorted out. That's still going on. It's going on in, in going on in the United Nations today. But it's it's actually fascinating. I mean, uh, Julian here is talking about. Um, the delayed uh, fusing on that bomb, on those bombs, yeah? Some guy at the MOD at the time told a BBC reporter, oh, we know why some of those bombs are not going off and not being effective. It was because the fusing is wrong. And the BBC were going to release this because somebody at the MOD had actually told them. In other words, the guys could have got killed by the by the knowles at the MOD giving out the wrong Indeed. information. And the reporting of the war was very controversial at times, wasn't there? There was a lot of friction between the military, the government and the media on it. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were some people who actually said... Uh, Margaret Thatcher said, Look, who, who's I, whose side of the me- is, is the media on? And if you remember... Because when they were saying things like British troops rather than our troops. Exactly that. And that was going out, out on, on what was the equivalent of Newsnight every night. But you see, when it started, few people in this country actually knew where the Falklands were. You had stories, people saying 1,900 guys, 1,900 people all that far away. Did we really want to save 1,900 people? Is it worth going for? When uh, HMS Sheffield was hit, again the stories came out, is this war worthwhile? When Galahad was hit and those pictures of the burning uh, uh, boats coming off Galahad, people were actually still questioning it and I think that has to be remembered. General, perhaps one of the most controversial incidents was the reporting of the attack on Goose Green before it actually happened. Um, Your men were there. Did it put their lives at risk? Well, it did, yes. Uh, And, of course, that did not, I must emphasise, that did not come from the media with us. It came from the media back here. And and, and they only released that because they'd been told it by the government. What did you think when you heard that it had already been broadcast before you were there? I sent an immediate signal back to Northwood, Sarah, I'm getting fed up with this. Can you please stop it? Far worse was my concern that that the whole plan was going to be blown. Luckily, the Argentines, of course, thought no one could be stupid enough (laughs) to send out something like this. This must be a trick. That's, That's what they thought. I've been told that by senior Argentine officers since. We thought it was a trick. Incredible. Um, I mean, it's interesting that since the war, friendships have been forged with veterans, both between Argentina and and the UK. Have you made friends with former enemies? Yes, I I made a lot of friends with the first Argentine officer I met, which was when I went into Stanley before the surrender and met this chap standing outside the house where the surrender negotiations were taking place. And he spoke English excellently because he'd been to the British Army. What did you say to him? Well, I said, is my general in there? And he said, no, he's not. But mine is, i.e. his. Uh, and he's negotiating with two British officers, and I knew who they were, uh, and I didn't want to uh, impose myself on this very important meeting, so I turned on my heel and walked away uh, and left them to get on with it. And wasn't this was the one Mike, Mike Rose, wasn't it? That was, one of them was Mike Rose, and the other was, was Rod Bell, a captain in the Royal Marines, who spoke better Spanish than English when he joined, I know, because I trained him. <laughs> and, and, and you remain friends with this person since? Yeah, he's dead now, sadly, but, uh, but, but I, I met him again and became very friendly with him. He used to correspond. How do, how do you feel today, General, when you hear that, in spite of what 
you sacrifice and your men sacrifice, that there is still an argument with Argentina over the Falklands? Well, it's a one-sided argument because the only people who are making the argument are the, are the Argentines for their own reasons, uh, to take the eye off the economy or through some sort of uh, long-lost longing for these islands. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't an argument because, as far as I'm concerned, the islanders will decide who they want to be ruled by. And if they said, we'd like actually to be Argentine, then the British government will, I'm sure, say, OK, off you go. But they don't want to do that. They actually want to be independent. Well, on that subject, this week it was announced that there will be a referendum to put on record once and for all what the inhabitants of the Falklands want for their future. Today, Argentina's President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner will attend a meeting of the United Nations Decolonisation Committee. She's the first head of state to do so. Two members of the Legislative Assembly of the Falklands Islands will also be present, including Mike Summers, who joins us now from New York. Good to speak to you, Mike. This meeting sounds very dramatic, but I understand it's an annual event. What happens at these meetings? Um, well, it is an annual event, and um, I, there might be a bit of a bear pit today because of the uh, arrival of, of the President. But um, what happens is that uh, Falkland Islanders will put our case to the, uh, to the worldwide audience uh, for the support for self-determination, which is supported by Chapter 1 of, of the UN Charter. I mean, that is the essence of our argument. And we put the point that, uh, that self-determination is a fundamental human right and should be respected by, by all parties. Are you looking forward to coming face-to-face -face with the President of Argentina? Well, I'm not sure we'll come face-to-face, -face and it, it's, it's neither here nor there, really. Um, you know, the argument is strong, the argument is, is, is robust, it has the support of international law, and it's not a difficult argument to make. Uh, we all simply put it, and then uh, as these things go, we'll have to sit and listen to a an awful lot of stuff from uh, from Latin American countries in response. But uh, we do hope that some of the more right-thinking people in the in the C24 will, in explanation of vote, at least uh, talk about the right to self-determination and the and the fundamental importance of the of the wishes of the people of the Falkland Islands in in this uh, in this issue. Do you think the referendum result will silence Argentina on the subject? No, of course not. Um, you know, Argentine politicians have already declared it to be illegal. Um, what an extraordinary statement to come from uh, from somebody who's a member of the uh, the United Nations to suggest that an act of self-determination could be illegal, an act of, of open democracy could be illegal. Um, what sort of thinking is that, <laughs> you have to ask? You'll be speaking today, I understand. What, what kind of message will you be giving? With, is it the point you've already made? Yes, well, the message will be very clear that um, people of the Falkland Islands have been in continuous and peaceful residence in the, in the islands for over 170 years. We go back six, seven, eight, nine generations now, uh, we are a people in our own right. Um, and, and we do have the right to be, to be heard. And, you know, according to the, uh, the Charter of the United Nations, uh, we have the right to, uh, to determine our own political allegiance. And uh, as was said earlier, um, you know, at the moment we choose to remain British. If at some time in the future our grandchildren or great-grandchildren decided that they wanted to do something else, well, that's their right to do so. Briefly, Mike, it's Liberation Day in the Falklands. How do you feel about not being at home but being in New York instead? Well, I feel sad not to be at home, but um, I feel proud and, and happy to be here with, uh, with a, uh, another colleague and, uh, and a group of six other young Falkland Islanders who, who deem it sufficiently important to be here to put the Falklands message uh, and, and, to, uh, and to be away on, on Liberation Day, which is a, a day that's very dear to us all. 
um, but it's you know it's important work to do. Uh, we have to get this message out to the international community as loudly as we can, and uh, and that's what we will do. All right, Mike Summers, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher Lee, will we ever see Britain taking on an enemy single-handedly like we did in the Falklands ever again? It's um, it's unlikely. We've done it since, of course. We had to do it uh, with uh, in a different sort of warfare. And that was terrorism warfare, and that is the big battle today. But if you but want the nature of, of what the conflict in the Falklands, do you think it would be repeated? All right. So let's, let's just supposing there was an invasion in the Falklands. How? What would you do about it? If you haven't got flat tops, if you haven't got carriers, you can't do what you did before. But you might do something else. So we mentioned Kate was. Uh, we were talking earlier about the HMS Dauntless Type 45. Type 45. What two of those down there in the submarine? They got enough power to actually deter the Falkland, uh, the uh, Argentinians from trying anything again. They take anything out, those, the, the, those craft. That's the big difference between now and 30 years ago. You're nodding, Julian. Yeah, absolutely. But I also say never say never. In um, that you think that perhaps when the eye is off the ball, the threat will be the greatest. Well, I think so. I, I'm not suggesting, I'm not being alarmist. I don't think they'll try it now. But you never know what's going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Anyone who says they do is, is, is guilty of uh, strategic hubris. So what do you think is necessary to be maintained in, in order to keep the Falklands safe? I think one of the things that should be maintained, not only for the Falklands, but for the defence and wealth of this country, is a strong navy because we are an island and we, we are a maritime power. You've got to remember that guys in the services today were not born when the Falklands took place. Yeah. Even, the, even the British commander, the brigadier, Bill Aldrich, wasn't actually in the army then. That's how we keep a thing going Indeed. in people's minds. But the most important part of it all, important part of it all, is the diplomatic side. And, and, and government will change in Argentina. Government will change here. Public opinion might even change. In, in, in all three places, and that is the thing to remember. But the guys that are actually will have to be asked to go and sort it out, if all that bit fails, uh, will be a totally new generation with totally different uh, equipment. They'll be, be able to do the job, I'm afraid, without being rough on them. It's the politicians that foul it up. General, when you're consulted about your experience, do you think that there's a general, a real understanding for, for what happened 30 years ago in terms of the politicians, but also perhaps the young, the young uh, troops that you speak to today? I don't know that the, the young these days do, because it was such a long time ago. It, it's, it's like the Zulu War or the Boer War mm. to me, uh, as you know, relative to my life. But I think they, the more we talk about it, the more they will understand. That's why talking about it is important. And if you were able to gather together all the men who were under your command 30 years ago, what would you say to them today? I would say what I said to a bunch of them the other day. You did it. You guys did it. Uh, the generals can have clever ideas, but you guys are the people who make it happen. And how proud are you of them? Enormously proud of them. Major General Julian Thompson, Christopher Lee, thank you very much for your time today. My thanks to our studio guests, of course, and Matt Teal and our team down in the Falklands. But from me, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.